Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with John Zerilli talking about his book, A Citizen's Guide to Artificial Intelligence. John is a philosopher with particular interests in cognitive science, artificial intelligence, and the law. He's currently a research fellow at the University of Cambridge and is just getting ready to start his next stint as a research fellow at the University of Oxford. Really, really interested to pick John's brain today about artificial intelligence and how it affects parents, how it affects teenagers, and what it's going to mean in the future. How can we prepare our teens for it? How can we help our teens to deal with it? And what subtle ways is artificial intelligence already having a huge impact on our lives and the lives of our teenagers that we might not even know about? All of that and more is coming up on the show today. John, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. So we today are having a discussion about artificial intelligence. You've got a book called A Citizen's Guide to Artificial Intelligence. Talk to me about this topic, how this became an interest for you, and why you think that a book is needed about this. You know, why is it important for people to know about, and why is do people not um, know enough about it? I got into it quite by accident, actually. I originally trained as a lawyer, but not being terribly satisfied with that calling, I shifted and fell into philosophy, cognitive science, and linguistics, and I did a PhD in that. Then when I went on the academic job market, there was this interesting job ad in New Zealand, of all places. I was living in in Australia at the time. And the job ad uh, specified that the ideal candidate would have a background in either machine learning, cognitive science, or computer science, and law or politics. So this made for a really interesting Venn diagram. And I don't (laughs) think many people had both of these backgrounds intersecting. But I did. Initially, I was skeptical. I thought, well, you know, I've just done all this work on cognitive science and the brain and language. Looking at technology, that seems like I'm changing careers yet again. But it turned out to be a really good decision. And that was back in 2017. And since then, this topic, this area of AI and AI and society and AI and politics and AI, AI everywhere has just completely expanded beyond anything that I could really imagine. It is just so of the moment. And the pace, if anything, has simply accelerated, both in the, from the point of view of 
research discoveries, uh, the papers that are coming out, new applications coming out all the time, new breakthroughs being made by the most advanced machine learning systems. And so there is just this demand for, for this area. And so uh, that's, that's why I've I decided to, to, to progress with it. And then after like my little stint in New Zealand, I went to Cambridge and that's where I am now. And within two weeks, I'm starting my new position at Oxford, pursuing the same, the same topic. So that's how I fell into it. The reason why it is important for people to know about it is because I think along with global warming, climate change, I think what the, one of the forces that is most going to shape our lives in this coming century is going to be the advent of um, increasingly sophisticated machine learning technologies. Yeah. For those of your audience who are older than, let's say, 30 years old, they will be able to attest to the transformation that the world has gone through in the past two and a half decades. You know, just just before dial-up internet came, that generation who were there before dial-up internet. And now you compare that world to the world we inhabit today, and it's almost changed beyond recognition. Just the way that we interact with our environment, the way that we use the thing, the objects around us to get our life done. You know, once upon a time, you might have written a shopping list. Once upon a time, you might have... Um, if you if you arranged to meet someone in you know in town, you would have had to be very specific about where and when you were. Yeah, there right. was no chance that you could just text someone and say, "Hey, here I am." Uh, so the world has just changed, and that that pace of change is only going to increase. And mm. you know this this stuff is here to stay. So that's why people need to know about it because it, it, it turns out it has lots of tentacles and it affects lots of things, mm. politics, um, our day-to-day uh, sort of social lives, our engagements in you know, work, our professional life. It's got lots of tentacles and lots of uh, repercussions. So citizens just need to get on top of the main issues in the same way that your average citizen knows stuff about global warming. They might not know much about meteorology and, uh, you know, geography and oceanography. They might not be able to tell you what the latest climate models are, but everybody's got a basic level of understanding about global warming, and that allows them to participate meaningfully in the democratic process. So the goal of this book is to try to get that level of education up a few notches for everyone. So where where are we at right now in terms of AI? Because doesn't it seem like when you try to talk to Siri, she just doesn't really know what you're talking about. She's like, "Hey, I searched Google for you, and here's what I found." And it's like, "No, that's not, I wanted you to order me a cappuccino from Starbucks." Um, this never mind. I'll just call it myself. You know. So I guess it seems like. AI is maybe, I guess it's pretty good at recommending you a new song on Pandora based yeah. on what you had listened to in the past, but uh, not so good at really like understanding your intent or, uh, you know, having a full conversation with you. So what, where are we exactly and where are we going? That's an excellent question. Your audience, no doubt, will be bombarded by 
lots of messages coming from the press, you know, the media, TV, CNN, PBS news, along the lines of there's some something to worry about here. AI is going to take over. It's going to take over our jobs. It's going to, right. you know, perform all the surgeries for us in the future. Um, mm, we won't need hairdressers anymore. Self-driving cars. Self-driving or, cars. We'll have flying cars that drive themselves and just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So on the one hand, there is this onslaught of information that tends to be apocalyptic and tends to, um, well, frankly, exaggerate the current potential of AI technology. Yeah. But then there's this other lived experience that we all have of AI such as it exists at the moment in the form of our smartphones and smart devices and so forth, which is anything but smart. It's it's like insanely (laughs) and infuriatingly stupid. (laughs) So there is but there's both of these things are going on. So traditionally AI comes in two flavors, right? So there's what's called, I don't know if you might have heard of this. There's what's called weak AI and there's strong AI. Now, weak AI is the AI that we've got now. This is AI that can basically do one thing and do it pretty well, okay, but it can't do anything else. So, yeah, you can have a system that is uncannily good at predicting what you would like to purchase on Amazon in light of what you have purchased before. Um, You've got uh, satellite navigation kind of software and, you know, all sorts of things um, that are used in governments, that are used by bureaucracies that help day-to-day administration of large states and, you know, local governments and councils. So there's, there's that kind of AI. Now, this is all, as I said, weak AI, and it yeah. does one thing and it does it pretty well, but it can't do anything else. The, the holy grail. Like, yeah, so when you try to go off script, it gets really confused. Like sometimes yeah. you, know, you call into customer service and it's an automated system. And as long as you're, you know, oh. still, yeah, I want to make a reservation. Yep. 3 p.m. Thursday. Yep. That sounds good. Okay, great. Everything is fine. And it totally understands what you're saying. But as soon as you're talking about like, okay, well now, so how do you guys do the dyes and the cuts there? And um, would you also do a shave or do I need to like, it gets confused. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wait now. So were you guys located on this block or would I go past, uh, you know, the Jamba Juice in order to get there? And then which way do I turn? It's confused already. Yeah. It doesn't know what's going on. So yeah. it's like, yeah, I can handle things in like a narrow sort of um, avenue that it has been trained to do and not really when you try to throw it a curveball. That's it. That's it. The holy grail of AI research is not weak AI. It's what has traditionally been called strong AI. And this is the kind of AI that does all of those other things we were talking about, but everything else too. Basically, that does what a human being can do. A human being can play tennis, then play chess, then go and add up, you know, arithmetic calculation, then go and, you know, uh, engage in some other fun social activity and interact with someone else, engage in conversation by saying things that are appropriate to the context. We, we take it for granted, but things like if I told you, could you uh, go to the shop and pick up some milk? You would know exactly what I meant by that. Mm. But it turns out to be extremely difficult to program a computer to understand that in a way that makes sense the way we think it makes sense. Because yeah. with the computer, I mean, the most logical language would have the computer do something like an embodied machine, a robot, go to the shop, 
pick up milk and the job's done because that's the, <laughs> that's the shortest line between those two points. That's the most direct, logical sort of language to express the idea in. So that's the holy grail of AI research, to get systems that can do things that are adaptively fluid and intelligent and flexible the way human intelligence is. And we're just, we're just nowhere near that. So to answer the question, finally, where are we at with AI? We're basically at the frontier of weak AI. We're pushing the boundaries of weak AI, but we're no, nowhere really much closer to breaking the other objective, reaching the other objective. And so what's like, there's all the futurists and the Ray Kurzweil's out there um, saying we're going to be, you know, maybe how far away from getting to the strong AI? Like, are we talking 20 years? Are we talking 10 years? Are we talking 50 years? Um, I, I'm not in a position to say, but I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't guess that it would become a reality any sooner than a hundred years. Okay. Yeah, but maybe that's really pessimistic. I know others think that by 20, 2050, 2040 even, that we might yeah, see right. like something like maybe a conscious AI, but I, I'm skeptical. Okay, well, so uh, regardless... It's definitely a big part of our lives. It's changing the way that we interact with technology and with each other, and it's not going anywhere. So it makes me wonder, you know, how do we push our teenagers to develop skills that are going to be relevant um, and interests that are um, going to last, that are going to still matter um, as AI kind of uh, takes over and approaches the strong AI? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, let me bracket the, the issue of strong AI because there are enough interesting issues for parents that arise with regard to weak AI as it is. So <laughs> okay. let's, let's just bracket the strong AI for the moment. If I were a parent, and I'm not, but if I were a parent, th there's a couple of, I suppose, basic points that I would have in my mind about trying to steer my child or at least guide my child in, in the path that will lead them to something good and wholesome for their future, a, a career that they can get something out of and that will last as long as they're happy to stay in it. So some really basic things. You know, you, your, your child should end up doing ideally what they're good at doing and what they enjoy doing. And generally, if you're good at doing something, you tend to enjoy it. And so that, that's like a cardinal principle that will stand the test of time. Now, with, with that in the background, then we've got this reality that more and more of the, let's call them process-driven tasks, process-driven jobs, anything that can be broken down into small parts, any task that can be broken down into smaller tasks and that don't um, that doesn't require too much in the way of individual human discretion or judgment, right? So it's more formulaic. Any task that's of that character will be increasingly automated as we go forward. So with that in the background, what does that leave? Well, it 
I think what that does is it means that the roles that have traditionally been um, roles performed by women, so the caring professions, teaching, nursing, counselling, um, those sort of roles are not really in danger of being automated. Interesting. The jobs that are are the ones that now are traditionally have traditionally been performed by men. Banking, finance, you know, lots of parts of engineering, even lots of aspects of law as well. A lot of that can be automated and made to fit into a kind of um, mold where you you it's 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 routine based, it's iterative, it's recursive. So that's an interesting, I think that's an interesting development that we're going to see. I believe that we're going to see happen over over the next say 20, 30 years. Whether this means that those professions that traditionally women have performed in the caring professions, whether they will be remunerated better is another Mm, question. There's good enough reason, I think, to believe that they won't be any better remunerated than they are now because generally the way our economies tend to work is that you get paid more for a job the rarer the job is and the harder it is to perform. But caring roles are generally not rare. I mean, everyone has the capacity to be empathic, to feel compassion, because that's just based, you know, that's just who we are as humans. So there's there's an issue there. I'm not sure that we will see a recalibration of of, of wages in the labour market. But what I think will probably happen is that more men will be flocking to those traditionally women jobs just because so much of the traditional male jobs have been performed and that will now be performed by machines. So um, to bring it back to what you do with your children, always guided by, you know, navigating by the star of your child's own innate interests and what they're good at, try to, I would try to steer them in something that I think had a future. And the less process-driven and formulaic and algorithmic a job, the more chance it will survive into the future. I hear people talking like, aren't the jobs of the future going to be that, you know, we need people to like manage the AI. We're all going to be sitting around and kind of programming the AI and going through and watching what it's doing. And um, the, the, factory people of the future aren't actually doing the work themselves they're like um using the software and managing all that so um are we wanting to um master ai ourselves or push our kids into um fields that are related to ai or um education that will make them proficient in that um and or is that um a losing battle This is a very good question. So we can all agree that reading, writing, and arithmetic are just a basic solid foundation of any education. We we don't even question it. That's just kindergarten, you know, first grade, second grade, all the way through. That's just the, the foundation of an education. I think that we should have coding added to that. 
So what we should yeah. be teaching our kids is reading, writing, arithmetic, and coding. <laughs> but then we don't aspire in life to become professional readers or <clears throat> professional um, people, people that perform arithmetic. Arithmeticers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Um, these are just taken to be the basic building blocks of, of mm. living in a civilized, complex, civilized society. And coding should be in the same category. On the one hand, I'm say, what I'm saying is that we, we all need to be better at coding and we need to have that, impart, that knowledge imparted to our children. On the other hand, I'm saying, don't think of a career in terms of being able to code. Think mm -hmm. of every career as somehow involving an element of coding or in which yeah. being able to code becomes handy at times. It's beneficial, yeah. And that then means that it, you're, you're, we're asking a different question. We're not really interested in having a society where everybody does computer science and where the universities are just spewing out computer science graduates. Right. We're thinking more in terms of what is it, what are the jobs that will survive? To what extent will they involve formula and process-driven work? Let's try to encourage our kids to develop their talents in that direction. And then we'll have coding as part of the curriculum, come what may. The, the reason why I'm skeptical about encouraging more students than necessary to engage in IT work, just because we're on the cusp of this machine learning revolution, is because if you think about it, once you have an entire, say, production facility, computerized honestly compare compare that with the same production facility that's staffed by humans now you said that we'll need people to maintain the computers sure but how many people do we really need to be able to maintain a production facility i'm willing right. to bet that if you had a factory with 50 people doing the production and then one where the computer did everything you might only need two three or four technicians yeah right like the ratio of maintenance guy or gal to computer is a lot lower what about this idea of bias like can ai be biased and I guess specifically with regard to teenagers, like how um, would that matter? So if you look at who is doing IT and artificial intelligence and machine learning, you look at the industry and the composition of the industry, it's overwhelmingly white, um, straight men, overwhelmingly. Mm. As for a whole series of demographic and sociological factors that that's the case, but that's the way it is. And it's unsurprising to learn that these technologies that are being developed by straight white men are going to be created in the mold of straight white men. They're going to mm. be tested on straight white men. They're going to reflect the assumptions that straight white men have about the world. I mean, obviously there's no one abstract thing called a straight white man. We're all very different. But okay. if you include other ethnicities, other cultures, other sexualities, other genders, if you include as many types of human in, in the mix 
you'll get a very different kind of technology, one that reflects the assumptions of all of these different people. Mm. And it's become sort of like a notorious fact about AI tech that it tends to perform really well. You name it, you know, whatever technology we're talking about, it will tend to perform very well on a straight white male or at least a white male. And then as you as you uh, deviate from that sort of type, mm. it, it degrades, performance degrades. Yeah. So by the time you get to an Asian woman or, um, you know, like a, a transgender individual, it starts really degrading. It doesn't know what it's dealing with. So an example would be a classifier that's meant to, to recognize your face or is meant to label someone for some characteristic. Maybe let's just say that it, it, it's meant to recognize whether you're old or young or whether you're uh, a woman or a man, I'm not sure, whatever, whatever the criterion might be. Well, if you give that system a white man, it will probably get the right answer, whatever mm. the classification it's doing. And if you derogate from that, you tend to get increasingly wrong answers. There's a great documentary on Netflix at the moment called Coded Bias. And it's, it's a fantastic summary of all the issues with AI about bias. Really, really good. We're here today with John Zerilli talking about artificial intelligence, how it affects families and teenagers, and we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Yeah, if I were a parent, I would worry about this more than many other things. And the way that that's supposed to work is that an idea comes up against another idea and people people fight it out with their arguments and you, you get to the bottom of something. The tendency with online and social media environments is that you don't always do that. Often what you're doing is just liking or endorsing something and then you leave it at that. From screen to screen, the changes are very subtle. It's not like you click on something and then the next time you click, you'll get something extreme. It's Join ISIS. Yeah, yeah right. right. So it's, it's insidious. It moves in very s- small degrees. So there's never really a point where it's obvious to you that this is now beyond the pale. So it does require a certain level of self-awareness on the part of the person using the system to just watch out for that and to sort of have a check on your own behavior, self-monitor. And I don't know if we can expect that of children. Yeah, I don't know if we can expect that of adults. Of adults, for that matter, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.